every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Pipeline Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Christopher Willis, CMO and self-proclaimed Chief Pipeline Officer at Acrolynx, an AI platform that uses a unique linguistic analytics engine to read content and provide immediate guidance to improve it, transforming how the world's biggest brands create high-performing content. In this episode, Christopher shares about why he and his team are focused on one-to-one equals three partner relationships and what that's meant for the business, building trust between the sales, marketing, and BDR teams, and how awareness and authenticity set up organizations for greater wins with prospective buyers. Christopher also talks about the partner ecosystem and why partner relationships are critical in making Acrolinks as successful as it is today. But before we get into it, Here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Qualified. If you're a revenue team that runs your business on Salesforce, Qualified will accelerate your lead generation, pipeline, and ultimately revenue. Learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Christopher Willis, CMO at Acrolinks, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Pipeline Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison. CEO of Caspian Studios. Today's show is brought to you by our friends at Qualified, the number one conversational sales and marketing platform for companies' revenue teams that use Salesforce. And I am joined by a special guest, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Ian. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, excited to chat about marketing, pipeline. You're one of the first, very first people that I have heard refer to themselves as the chief marketing officer and chief pipeline officer. So that's pretty, pretty freaking excited. We'll get into that and much more. What was your first job in marketing? So we started a company back in the late nineties, specific to services and financial services companies. And in 2021, the world changed. We were working primarily in Boston and New York and, um, the economic downturn that happened after 9-11 drove most small consulting businesses out of their large enterprise customers. And so we could either close or reinvent. And as it turned out, we reinvented. One of the things that we had been doing, one of our partners had been working on a CRM conversion project for what seemed like a decade. I probably spent three years moving them from Jana to something else. Mars was the system he was moving to. And these mean nothing to people today, but they were early CRM. And while doing that, he thought, you know, it'd be really interesting if we could see this data tied to sales data, warehouse data, fulfillment data, different analytics systems inside, specifically a mutual fund business on a small screen. This is prior to BlackBerry or iPhone or anything. And we created the first packaged mobile application. We didn't really know we were doing it, but we it wasn't just taking a big screen system and driving it down into a small handspring or Palm Pilot. It really was a composite application. And so there was four of us, the core four leaders in the company, and the room spun, and we all ended up in a corner, and my corner was marketing. <laughs> and at the time that the room was spinning, I was actually running sales for the business, and 
when it finished spinning, I was running marketing. And my first marketing campaign was trying to gain traction around a thing that nobody had ever heard of before. Like, I'm going to help you do your job, but I'm going to take you off your computer and do it for you on your Palm Pilot, wherever you go. And so I had just finished reading a book um, by John Spolstra, who is a, a marketer and, and sports team owner. And his bet was everybody likes a FedEx box. And he had struggling, I think it was the Portland Trailblazers with a team that he was marketing for at the time. They were losing season ticket holders. And so he took a rubber chicken and shoved it in a triangular, long triangular FedEx box with a jersey on it and a little note tied to its ankle and sent it out to people. And long story short, huge conversion rate and drove up the purchasing of season tickets. So Operation Rubber Chicken was born at Pixis. I had custom-made boxes built with little pillows with stars and moons on them. I spent $1,000 buying the cheapest handspring device. Like that's the, the crappy generic Palm Pilot of the day. <laughs> and loaded it with what looked like a demo but it was slides. It was complete slideware on this device. So you turn the device on, it's all you can have access to and, and hand delivered it to 10 heads of sales at mutual fund companies. So not IT, this wasn't a, a, a software sale. This was a, a lifestyle sale to a, a person that makes millions of dollars a year. And that $1,000 investment won us 4.3 million in lifetime value at Putnam, Pioneer, and American Express funds and drove us towards being the de facto leader in the space. We kept competition out of that space for a decade because of the work that we did in the early days, building ourselves into a vertical, becoming the solution, and then expanding peripherally to different use cases inside that business. I didn't know what I was doing, but as it turned out, uh, I learned as I went. I still don't know what I'm doing. Well, let's flash forward to today and, and tell me about your, your, your current role. So- yeah, you identified a, an interesting thing in nature. There isn't a chief pipeline title. when Yet. Well, yet. I mean, it's, it's interesting. And it takes a very special company to make this role work. You have to have alignment between sales and marketing. You're, let's say that the chief pipeline officer is the marketing leader. And I think in most cases, that makes the most sense. And we can talk about that. But you have to get along with your CRO. If there is any ego or aggression between those two, this will not work because I talk to salespeople. I, I'm responsible for creation progression and Q plus one, Q plus two. So the health of the future business. I think in terms of for new logos, I'm living in a rolling four quarters forward model. For expansion, I'm, I'm living in a rolling two quarters model. Everything that we're doing right now is having an impact on the future. Shane, our CRO, really gets to focus on current quarter business. He gets mm -hmm. to deal with his team and make sure that we're doing the things necessary to get deals progressed and closed. But I'm back here pulling the levers on how are we feeding the engine? How are opportunities entering the engine? And then once they're in, what's the future look like? So what's our, our unweighted pipeline? And then what's the weighted pipeline that shows me essentially how we've progressed the things that we've built? And so I'm surrounding the traditional sales model. But like I said, it makes sense because I have a lot of those levers. I, I think in terms of, of sales velocity is the thing that I'm trying to impact the most. And the way that I look at sales velocity is it's a math equation of the number of opportunities 
in a rolling four quarters model times the conversion rate times the average sale si- uh, sale cost over divided by the sales cycle, number of days in the sales cycle. And that comes out with a number, a dollar amount per day. For us, it's a euro. We're based in Germany. And it's it's not terrifically relevant to me what that number is. It's the trajectory, the direction of that number. I need that number to be going up. So back to why I, why I am positioned to do this, I have those levers. So numbers of opportunities entering the pipeline. I can impact that starting backwards by quality. So if I'm giving the right things to the salespeople, they're going to convert them into dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I own the BDR organization and all of the demand organizations. So moving backwards, do I have an effective BDR team that can convert leads into meetings, into early stage opportunities? Do I have a demand team that's generating the MQLs that are going to be able to be converted by the by the BDR team? From a conversion rate standpoint, is my product marketing team providing the tools, the information, and the enablement to be able to drive deals forward for the sellers? If a deal isn't progressing, it could be the seller's fault, but it could be Chris Carroll's fault. He's our head of product marketing. And so he's on the hook and is is tied to those numbers of, of specifically our, our weighted pipeline. Are we progressing? If we aren't, he feels it and he provides tools and guidance and office hours to help sellers to move deals forward from an average deal size standpoint. How are we packaging? What are we selling? Is it attractive? Is it competitive? I reach all the way into product in helping to set product strategy and define the direction that we're going in to be an attractive product, to put candy out in front of an enterprise solution so that we're generating the leads and interest that will help to increase the average sales price. From a sales cycle standpoint, all of those rules. Is it the right lead? Are we progressing it correctly? Can we sell it for the amount that we're asking for? So all of those things play into how I measure the different departments of my team to be able to impact the sales organization and get deals closed. This was a thing that when our, our new CEO joined the company in 2020, he looked around the room and said, one of us is going to be the head of pipeline. Who do you want it to be? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know that it's me. Like, I, I know that I want it to be me because I definitely don't want it to be you. And I don't think I want it to be that guy. So me. And we've done a lot of learning together, the three of us, our CEO, CRO, and me. And it's it's developed a really great, system for a continually growing pipeline over time. I love that. That's so cool. It's such a cool way of framing it. I, I love this sort of the modern take on on the CMO being this pipeline owner plus market owner. Like I love the idea of like the chief market officer that you understand how the market is behaving and you understand how you're serving that market and getting people into the pipeline like holistically from everything from affinity, you know, through, through down getting it over to sales. But I, I completely agree. That's like CRO should be focused on closing this quarter. Just what is, you know, what is closing this quarter constantly 24 seven, getting those reps to figure it out. And every other part of the pipeline should be the CMO, but you know, and, and provide, provide all the, all the support to allow him to do the thing that he needs to do the most, because I get paid on his results. Let's all just understand that if we don't close deals this quarter, I am going to suffer. We are not an organization that says, great job on getting leads. Here's your bonus. So all of us, my demand team, product marketing team, all tied 
to this current quarter's results. But we know how to get there in any given quarter, and we've got to do the things that help him and his team to be successful. And that's, I mean, the thing that I've brought in the most recently is the relationship that I have with product management and with our strategy leader and the R&D organization. And it comes from that market view that we have in the front office. And I'll combine our CRO and I in this. We see what's happening in the outside and can think about what's necessary to be competitive and drive that back into the product organization. And I spent several weeks last quarter over in Berlin with the back office team helping to identify how we can best work with them. So what do they need to see from the front office in terms of feature requests, enhancements to the product? How do they need to see those and how they're going to work into the process? Then what do we need to be competitive right now? And we have a very strong strategy leader in addition to the folks in product management and R&D that have been here for a long time and really understand the product to be able to turn on a dime and add new features that to me represent, like I said earlier, the candy that draws people in. We're an enterprise content governance solution. So it feels kind of like medicine. Like I need to tell you that you're sick and show you and make you believe me. And then I need to introduce a medicine that you've never heard of as the thing that's going to make you feel better versus something like Grammarly where it's just a big bowl of candy and it doesn't actually do a lot and it's not really great for you, but everybody knows that it's candy and they're all coming to take it. And how do we, as an as a enterprise SaaS business, incorporate some of that candy into our offering? And that's something that you know, I don't think traditionally the back office thinks about. They think about the functionality and the features that are going to drive the platform forward. And they think in terms of like multiple years of view. They have a long-term view on the success of the product. I have a view of today. Like I know what I need to see in the product right now to be successful and how we compete in, in, in the world that's changing around us and being able to bring that into it is just another view of this whole thing. I'm, all I'm trying to do is generate pipeline. It all comes back to that wherever I'm touching and it's a really interesting place to play. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where we go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest marketing and pipeline secrets. Let's dig into the customers. What types of customers do you serve, and uh, what types of companies? So we sell to the top 2,000 companies in the world, specifically in technology, pharmaceuticals, financial services, and manufacturing. And what does that buying committee look like? It's different in every group. So the the use cases inside those businesses fall into technical documentation and product manuals, into marketing, and then into service and support. And so it's different in each one of those. Marketing is obvious because it's going to be somebody in digital marketing primarily um, that understands the problems that they're having developing content to fuel their demand engine. They're driving towards conversion as their goal. So if conversion isn't happening, then I need new content, I need a new campaign, and I need different conversion. So when we get in front of those folks, we can talk to them about how it's not new, it's optimization. We can help them 
identify their best content, create more content that looks like that, optimize everything that they do and convert. So that person's going to take us up ladder to their VP level. We are unlikely in a marketing organization to have a conversation with a CMO because this falls somewhat below what at least I would be looking at. But that VP of demand organization down into digital leadership directors and such are the ones that are coming together to make that early decision and then bringing in IT and InfoSec because we are touching critical private data to drive through to the purchase of the product. On the tech doc side, it's it's different because we're likely to run into somebody that you know, does this for a living, somebody that's an editor in the technical documentation space that lives in a world of editorial process. And that person doesn't have access to the business buyer necessarily. Mm -hmm. Business buyer in this case would be somebody that owns product development. That yeah. no, no, three levels down is a, is a product documentation person. So that runway is a little bit longer because we have to help enable that person to buy software. They're not traditional software buyers, but they see the value of what we do. And interestingly, I would say 60% of our opportunities fall in that area. So that's, that's the legacy of our business. And we still continue to see new business in that area. It just takes a, a smidgen longer than when we can build a firm committee in the marketing organization. And like, what would an example of something like that be? Is that someone like, like a, like Michelin or somebody that, that is going to need to do tons of content for their products that are getting out there in the world? Or what does that, what does that look like? What types of companies would that so be? So it, it could be any of your big semiconductor companies, um, any sure. of your big internet, social media companies, the biggest software companies in the world who have millions and millions and millions of pages of documentation. And what our product does is from a live author guidance standpoint, helps individuals write like the business. So clarity, consistency, character, it's going to be terminology, style guidelines, tone of voice, inclusive language, emotion, all the things that make their content theirs. For the organization, the broader governance model, we automate. So think TSA checkpoint. We're the TSA checkpoint of content inside a big business. So all content goes through. Some of it has already been checked, either in our product or some other product, and meets the guidelines of the business, and it's going to go right through. Some content's going to have a water bottle in its bag, and it's going to get pulled, and it's going to be flagged, and it's going to be corrected. So there are multiple ways to correct from an automation standpoint. You can automate with generative AI now. That's one of the things that our product does. But in the case of most of our customers, because these are the biggest companies in the world who care about the words that they say, they want to take that back to the original writer, give that guideline, that call that guidance to that original writer and let them make that change. From there, I'm able to then see how my documentation is performing. So is it useful to the audience? Is it clear? Is it solving problems? And that's where we start to see a shift from end results in product documentation to end results in product support. So we jump all the way to the end of the process from the beginning, creating and documenting to the end, service and support. How are my docs working? Is it solving problems before people call in? Because if it is, I'm saving a lot of money on phone calls and I can take all my phone desk and turn them into content creators and solve more problems through content. If it's not, I'm paying a lot of money for my phone desk. So all of that ties together to the overall ROI of what we're selling. What is your marketing strategy? How does your, your pipeline strategy fit into that? 
Sure. So we still think, I mean, I look back pre-pandemic and our best results were getting very hyper-personalized. Like we we know who we want to sell to. So if we're going after, I don't know, I'll pick somebody that's not a customer. If we're going after Ford, I can figure out down to the name who I want to talk to at Ford based on who we've sold to at other major car manufacturers. And because I'm not shotgun blasting this organization, I can get very targeted and understand the people more than just the persona. Like I get what you do, but I also want to know you. And a very generic version of this is I would know where you went to school and I could talk to you about your college experience. For me, when I do prospecting, because I do, because I like it, I'm in a community. Some people could call it a cult. You could judge, but I'm a CrossFit athlete. I'm a CrossFit coach. And so if you have CrossFit, Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But if you have CrossFit in your LinkedIn profile, again, definitely a cult, you and I are probably friendly. So if I can find that, if I can use LinkedIn Navigator and identify people that I'm looking to talk to that have that in their, in their profile, then the email is simple because CrossFit.com has your games account. If you've ever done the open, you're in there and you have a number and all your scores. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to pull yours. I'm going to put mine and I'm My email is simple. If this is you, good news, this is me. And if that's us, we're friends. You know this. So as friends, I'd like to tell you what I do for a living. And that gets 75% conversion rate. So it's hard. Not everybody has the benefit of being in a very easily identifiable cult. But find that. And that's what we've pushed into our BDR organization. That's what we pushed into our demand creation process so that we can enable the team to do that kind of research, have that kind of connection, put something on the desk of that person. It's much harder now because people don't go to work. So when when I knew you were going to come to an office every day, I knew how to get you. When I have to ask you now, I want to send you a package. Can you let me have your home address? Yeah. Uh, I don't, A, it gives a person the opportunity to say, oh, 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 I'm being sold to. No, I'm good. I don't need your thing. But also, no, you can't have my home address. That's weird. And, and so the process has gotten harder, but we continue to think around the process of how do we continue to be that targeted to show people that we know who they are and get that initial conversation. Because I know that if I can get that initial converse, conversation, this is going to, at, at a very high rate of conversion, become a deal. If we tell you about our medicine, you'll realize that it solves your problem. The problem is that you weren't looking for medicine. So it our our organic lead flow is is not where i'd like it to be that's the thing that we're working on now as much as possible as a smaller business you know that people don't like to spend money on awareness but that's a thing that we've turned on in the last year even now when everybody's budgets are super tight i'm still paying for awareness because that's important to our growth any other thoughts on marketing strategy before we go to the playbook abm isn't new the Operation Rubber Chicken was essentially ABM, but we called it direct mail. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It, it, it obviously, like you know, putting putting different parameters around these things and and defining them, and you know, what's what's old is is new again. That sort of stuff always takes place. It's it's it is the the explosion of channels and and places to find people and find information and all that sort of stuff is so much more complex than it was back then. That you know, the, your barrier to entry might might be a little bit harder now, but like you said, that personalization or that human connection 
and authenticity yeah. is, you know, always going to win the day. It does. And, and I think that there's so much that you can learn from the signals that you get back from this outreach and how do we use, if that's a simple view of, of what the signals are that we can get from the things that we do, how predictive could we get? by sending out learning what content does what and what impact we expect it to have and what results we should be able to collect to be able to create a predictive model of what's happening and what's not happening, really. And with the increase in AI in the world right now, this starts to get easier and it starts to get more predictive. So you know and can target where you should be spending more of your time based on those signals. This can continue to get better as we go, but already where we are is just helping us to know where to spend time. Like you think this is good. The system thinks this is good. It might be good. You think it's good. The system thinks it's junk. You need to validate. You need to show me why you think it's good because predictively it doesn't look like it is. And then everything in the middle, it just starts a new kind of conversation. All right, let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Where we talk about the tactics that help you win. What are three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Our partner channel right now. So this is the thing that we've put investment in over the last couple of years, hired a great team, put them in place. And while it continues to grow, the results, the early results for the spend are huge. So continuing to invest in that area matters. The leads that come in, the deal registrations that come, th come in through our partner channel, close faster and close easier. Did you start with like one partner and get it really great? Did you start with a, or one or two, or did you start with a bunch? And then how did, how did you go about doing that? Well, the business, I mean, so we've been around for quite some time and, and there's been a lot of companies that have, that we've worked with and that have worked with us over the many years the business has been here. But the difference between then and now is the focus on, you know, the one and one equals three relationship that we're having with the businesses that we work with now. Businesses like MH MHP, which is a services organization owned by Porsche or Hitachi in Japan um, or RWS, uh, where there's real value in the two companies working together that goes well beyond small technical and in marketing relationships. Like I, I love to put together, you know, quick par mar marketing partner deals so that we can go out and co-market together. But yeah. those are what they are. They're marketing and we're going to get some leads out of it maybe. And they're going to get some leads out of it, but we don't really work together right. versus crafting a product and an offering and a point of view. So we identify as a content impact platform and we meet MHP over in Germany Again, services organization owned by Porsche, and they have partnered with us on the concept of content impact, and they've created a content impact program and an analysis and the ability to go out and sell into that space on their own and then incorporate our in our product, which is a unique enabler to reach content impact. That's what we're looking for. Partners like Hitachi, who are going to help take us to market in a much broader way in a region where we have some success, but not all success, specifically in Asia and targeting Japan. These are big, exciting partnerships. Or Salesforce, where we have a very exclusive role as the only product that does this kind of content governance inside Salesforce knowledge within the product. So incorporated into that. 
there's nobody else that does it. So we're very mm-hmm. differentiated in that space. And Salesforce sellers get the benefit of getting paid on our deals. And yeah, yeah fantastic. Um, so these these are the things that didn't exist two years ago that are now driving measurable pipeline and deals. So, you know, continuing to drive into this channel as, as something that is in the DNA of our business. I mean, partner marketing has always been part of marketing, but those partner relationships are, are much more strategic. And it's interesting to hear you talk about sort of like the impact of, of, you know, to, to pipeline, obviously partner ecosystems driving tons and tons of revenue. You know, I mean, I think Salesforce's ecosystem is for every dollar they make the ecosystem makes it like four or five. I mean, it's crazy. So clearly that stuff works. It's just interesting hearing you say it from a pipeline perspective as a CMO rather than like the CRO saying it or, you know, or like you said, those sort of one-off, more of more partner marketing type plays uh, uh-huh. strategy. But therein is the thing. I was saying it is the chief pipeline officer. <laughs> Touche. And and to be fair, I mean, and I, I I kid, but I don't because if I was just responsible for marketing, they're a competing channel. So if all I cared about was my piece of the business and generating marketing led leads, that would be a challenge. But we don't think that way. And interestingly, we've gotten pressure to report on the question has always been, well, who's generating the leads? And we honestly don't think that way or report that way. There is no sales did this, marketing did this, channel did this, because we're all doing all of those things. If sales generates a lead, they generated it with a, most likely with a cadence that was built by somebody in marketing that's running in sales loft. If we do an event with a partner through the partner channel, the partner marketing people have worked with our field marketing organization to build out that event and make that event successful. Nobody's touching anything by themselves. So unique in the point that I don't think in terms of, of division. When I got here, it was 60-40. Marketing generates 60% of pipeline. Sales creates the rest of it. And that, in my opinion, is toxic because then you've got everybody competing to try and get that. Sellers are holding on to everything that they do because they need to show their value in the, in the pipeline creation process. We got one number and I know what that number is. And I, I sitting here as the pipeline person don't care where it comes from as long as we get there. And now let's use all the tools that we have. Okay. Second uncuttable. It's been recently my BDR organization. Yeah. And we've tried to, like, I've looked at outsourcing. I've looked at other ways to convert the interest in the leads that we create. But our BDR organization has continually stayed good. Now, I think one of the things that's interesting is that when I got here, there were two BDRs that were hired the same time that I was. I think we onboarded together and that was the whole BDR team. They reported into sales and they were sorry guys, wildly unsuccessful. And Mm. I have a thesis on why. And it's because if their job is to turn interest into meetings, they didn't create the interest and it's easy for them to push away from that, try to do their own things, not be accountable to the process. When our CRO joined the company, one of the first things he said was, would would you prefer, like he needed to come in and grow a sales organization. Would you prefer to have the BDRs? And I said, well, hey, if you wouldn't mind, see how cordial we are. But 
yes, I would be happy to take the BDR organization. And we saw that team dramatically shift because marketing's using the BDRs as the litmus test for everything they do. They're the filter through which I get my ROI. If I don't own that function, if I don't make that function better, it's very difficult for me to prove success from an actual pipeline creation standpoint. When we brought them in, we enabled them. We built them all their content. We helped them with all of their email cadences. We provided them with all the direction on the way that they would run their programs, spend their time, the touch model that they were going to work through, everything they needed to be successful. And then we supported them all the way through the process. And we went from 3% contribution to pipeline to 78% contribution to pipeline in two quarters. Wow. Because we were creating, my marketing team is amazing. So they're creating real interest in real leads, but we had this little tiny function that lived inside sales that didn't care about that at all. And so nothing was converting, nothing was moving through. So I'm spending money over here to get no benefit over here. If I own the middle, I can guarantee we're going to get through. Now, Ian, what you're going to say is, cool, but then the sales organization, how do you handle that handoff? We've pushed our compensation model for the BDRs and the whole demand team into the discovery stage, which we don't own. So the first thing everybody gets paid on is when something makes it to, uh, I'll call it an SQL, we don't call it that, but it, once something is sales qualified, folks get paid, but they get their real money when it moves into discovery. So it becomes a valued pipeline item. We don't do either of those two things. Sales does that. So we've built a level of trust between the BDR, the marketing organization and the sales team to say that we think we're giving you quality. We're going to prove that we're giving you quality by putting our paychecks on the line with you. Mm -hmm. And that's created a frictionless handoff process. Yeah, and it's just it's just way way easier to track the actual results of the things that that drive value rather yep. than tracking the stuff that doesn't <laughs> doesn't right. drive the value, right? Absolutely. I think you can probably look at it a little bit more data driven as a as a CMO or as a chief pipeline officer than you could as a CRO, perhaps. Absolutely. I mean, I I, I think that you know, the right CRO would look at it the right way, but I have a number that's associated with them. And if they're doing it, then we're cool. And if they're not, we need to fix something. But it all ties back to the amount of discretionary spend that I'm putting into my marketing organization. So whatever goes in the engine needs to come out. And if it's not coming out, we have a, we have a problem that we can solve. We're uniquely positioned to solve it. If it lives anywhere else, they'll solve the problem some other way. So if it's living in sales and nothing's coming through the BDRs, it's not incumbent upon the CRO to optimize the BDRs for the leads that are coming in. It's They're going to find a different thing for them to do. They're going to yeah. smile and dial and go play on LinkedIn. And so then anything that I'm spending is just going into the garbage. So eventually my budget's going to go away because I can't prove any value because nothing's coming through this channel. I have to be able to optimize that. Yeah, I call it finding Nemo marketing. All drains lead to the ocean, right? Every <laughs> single drain's got to go to the AE. Because mm -hmm. like, that, that is where the money is made, right? So it's like, if it's going anywhere else, like, what are we even doing? Why are we even Absolutely. doing that? All right, third, third uncuttable budget item. So I'm going to not say demand gen team because that's obvious. But I think it, I, assuming they're there is the content process. It's the content that we're creating to drive this whole engine. And I'm not saying that because we are a content business. 
whether it's here or in my last several experiences, content has been the big differentiator. So an example that I would give is at my last company, we were a mobile cloud testing business. So think big banks want to test on all the devices that are in market for their consumers on any given day. We have a data center, a series of data centers all over the world filled with actual physical devices that they can test over the internet. So they load their apps and they can build automation on top of those and run them. Content marketing helps change the average deal size at that business from under 100,000 to a half million to 1.7 million. And it was, we, we developed a magazine a quarterly magazine that became the expected deliverable quarterly by all of our customers and the market. It was called Factors. And what Factors did was lay out all of the devices that exist right now that are in use by region, by industry, and by consumer demographic. Then in the back of it, it would go on to show what percentages of testing coverage represented based on number of devices so that we could have a conversation. And I could say, Ian, you are the head of mobile application development at Bank of America. How many devices do you think you want to test on? And you would say, you know, I'm thinking we could probably do this on about 15 devices right now, just based on, you know, a couple of Androids, a couple of iPhones, yeah, 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 yeah. And our sellers would pull this thing out, flip, 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 put it in front of you and say, okay, so what you just said you were a bank. So we're in the bank system. You said 10 to 15 devices. Okay. That's 20% test coverage. Are you a 20% test coverage business? <laughs> no, no, I said I was bank of America. Okay. Well, where do you feel comfortable from a test coverage standpoint to protect the business's reputation? 80. Okay. That's going to be 150 devices across these configurations in these regions. So we're going to need multiple data centers to be able to run this program so that we're making sure that we're hitting the right regions and the right devices in the right places. Does that sound more like the business you want to do? And when you have that kind of conversation and when you're talking to the right people and showing them this right in front of them in a nice, pretty published magazine, it seems very real to them. So content marketing is huge. If you can do it right, actionable content cures so many issues. Content means 50 things to 50 different people at this right. point. And so it's a very it's a very difficult thing to look at, but content marketing I think in B2B needs a little bit of a refresh to understand how it drives strategic pipeline to the business. And it's cool to hear that type of a story, which is so, so tactical. How do you view your website? Through a browser? So, oh, who do I not want to have listened to this answer? Our website is largely informational right now. It is far less of a conversion engine than I would like it to be. I feel like I've said that enough internally that it's not news. Don't I, worry. I, I mean, I think every single CMO on the planet feels that way about their website. It, it's, it's you know, like it's always an evolving process. I think we all know that. Because we still need to explain what we do, we need that informational web portal for people to come and understand what we do. Our primary call to action is let's talk about this. Those are our best leads. But that's our only major call to action. Until recently, we have a couple, I mean, we have lots of landing pages that accompany our campaigns, but I don't count those as the website. They're transient and they're specific. People that come to acrolinks.com 
are hit with a lot of information, a lot of actionable content, videos, podcasts, webinars, and I'm going to boil it down to a single call to action, which is let's talk about this. If I if I had my way, I, I don't need it to have a button on every corner of every page above the fold everywhere, everywhere, touch, 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 click, 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 click. But uh, we do get a lot of traffic and I would like to find ways to get more out of what we have today. What about something that maybe is your most cuttable budget item or something that's maybe not working or fading away? Uh, we're struggling with direct mail right now, which has been, like I said earlier, very successful for us, but it's getting harder to find people. So there are people within our teams that still use it and use it very successfully. So it's still an interesting tactic, but it wouldn't kill me to cut it because when you look across the sales organization, we've given every seller a budget, individual budget within, we use postal and, and they're not able to use it. I'm not going to say they're not using it. I think they would love to use it, but they're not able to use it. And that's, it's a shame because before the pandemic, that was number one. That would be the uncuttable thing is we need to put things on people's desks. Yeah. And, and now as, as a specific tactic, that's challenging. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, that and events and all this, it's like so dynamic. It's so fluid now with, with, with people being in their homes. It's just, I mean, it's both terrifying and, and a very exciting time to be a marketer. It, it is. I mean, events is the number two thing on that list, by the way. So yeah, I know you hit it. everybody, you know, like it, it's things, their utility changes very interestingly when people are at their house instead of an office. No kidding. Um, all right, let's go to our final segment, quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like how qualified.com helps companies generate pipeline quickly Tap into your greatest asset, your website, to identify your most valuable visitors and instantly, and I mean instantly, start sales conversations. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Quick hits. Chris, are you ready? I certainly think so. Number one, what's a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? Uh, I used to play guitar. I'm yeah, a beekeeper. Oh, beekeeper. Let's go oh, with that. That's that's pretty good. Do you have a favorite book, podcast, or TV show that you'd recommend? Uh, I'm a Harry Potter person. Love it. Me too. Do you have a favorite non-marketing hobby that might make you a better marketer? Well, I mean, we already talked about the CrossFit coach thing, but I think that definitely helps. If you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? If I could do it over again, I'd probably be in sales. What advice would you give to a first-time CMO trying to figure out their marketing strategy. Start at the top, figure out what the top level strategy is and build down from there. Don't try and start at your tactics. You are also a podcast host of a podcast called Word Birds. Can you tell us, do you have a favorite episode that you've done? So this season, there's been some interesting ones that I didn't know where they were going to go, but my favorite episode this season has been with HP Enterprises because I was speaking with the person that does content for their customer experience center out in Austin, Texas, and they're sending people up to the International Space Station to film experiential video that people are coming to, to Texas to view through VR goggles to get a feel of what it looks like to service HP equipment on the space shuttle. 
Wow. That is, that is some pretty cool content. We'll have to link that one up in the show notes. Chris, that's it. That's all we got for today. Absolutely awesome having you on the show. For our listeners, you can go to acrolinks.com. Check it out. Especially if you're in marketing, definitely check it out. Which, I mean, that's everyone who listens to the show. So, you know, you got a solutions tab, just click on the one that says for marketing. Chris, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Nope. I think that's it. That's it. Come to www.acrolinks.com. Happy to talk to any of you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks again to our friends at qualified.com, a conversational sales and marketing platform that transforms the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.